Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here I am. Uh, there you are. And uh, this is Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett, and I am your host. So, who's the guest? The guest is David Baltimore. I was trying to get David for a while. And, um, you know, in a, in a perfect world, everyone comes through New York and comes into the studio. However, if I waited for everyone to come to New York, I would not get the guests that I want. So, in this case, to get David, I uh, went to meet him at Caltech. Um, it's Pasadena, so it was warm. We met in this library in the center of the building. Uh, it was warm in there. And we had an AC unit uh, hissing away about 10 feet from us. So uh, I have gone in with software and pulled out most of that hissing. And what's left is kind of a like a little underwater warble in the background. The audio is fine. You can hear the conversation great, but you will hear some background noise. Apologize for that, but sometimes... You have to go on the road. So what did we talk about? And what do we know about David? Well, he is the former president of Caltech. He helped establish the Whitehead Institute. He most notably won the 1975 Nobel Prize um, for discovering reverse transcriptase. Uh, It's such a surreal moment. I I mean, it's obviously not something that I'm going to ever experience in my life. Probably not you either. But to be sitting at home and the phone call comes and it says, you know, he was 37 years of age. And why, why am I telling you all this? You can hear it on the podcast. The point is, we talked about the Nobel Prize. Um, yeah, I'll have more to say on the other side. But for now, here's your First Rounders podcast with David Baltimore. Listen up. This, let's see. How, is that mic good for you? Uh, yeah, it seems a little low. And I'm just trying to remember how to get there. All right. That should pick you up. This should be. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so, well, first off, this is, I, I was thinking today, we're coming up on, you're pushing 20 years at Caltech now. This is like your 19th year. I am. It's a long, uh, right. long tenure. It is. Yeah. Well, I was president for 10 years. Yeah. Or nine years. And yeah. then uh, I decided to stay. Yeah. You like it out here. I like it out here. Well, this is, because you're a New York guy. I was brought up in New York. And You're born in the city, I think. Yeah. I was born in the city. And then what happened? And then I ended up in for almost thirty years at, at MIT. Well, no, before that though, I mean, yeah. Oh, I, for, I, I thought for a second when I started doing research that you were your typical New York City kid, but your your parents, I think, moved you out. Um, oh yeah, uh, we lived in Queens on 
until I was in second grade, I think. And then my parents moved to Great Neck, which is the first suburb on, on Long Island, um, outside the city. And, and that was for the schools. They had the best public schools. Oh, they knew that? Oh, yeah. And so were they... they um... That was the only reason they moved. They were in exile. They were? From, from the city. They were, they were city people. Oh, they both grew up there? They both grew up there. Do you know how they met? Um, they met at a party um, in Brooklyn. Um, about the time my mother was, um, I guess, in, when she was in college. And my father never went to college. Um, they were an unlikely pair because my mother was very intellectual. My father was a businessman. Uh huh. Um, That's the only reason why they were an unlikely pair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they just had very different um, roles in the society, and and different friends, and different interests. But, but when they met somehow. Uh, but they had a very happy marriage for I don't know, 50 years. I think I read that your father, was he, did he work in the garment district? He was in the garment district. Yeah, yeah. can we talk, that's like such a perfect New York story, right? <laughs> yes, um, it is. Can we talk about that? So, yeah. and I don't remember if the garment district was still in like the Lower East Side then, or if it No, moved. no, it was uh, uh, in the mid-30s on the West Side, just north of Penn Station. Yeah, so he so worked it was very there. easy, he commuted in from Great Neck on the Long Island Railroad and just walked up to his office. Yeah, and, and your mom was secular, but your father was religious, no? That's true. My father wanted me to have a bar mitzvah, and I did. Uh, my mother probably didn't care whether I did or not. But, you know, the bar mitzvah was almost a cultural thing, not yeah. a religious thing. Yeah. And so I'm sure she was glad, too, that um, we all made the investment to have a so, but, but because my father was from a religious family, uh-huh. uh, we were conservative Jews, um, and that meant that I had to learn Haftar in Hebrew, and um, so it was a, a long learning experience in order to have the bar mitzvah. I think I read someplace that he was Orthodox. That's what I was thinking. He was. He grew up Orthodox. Oh, okay. Orthodox okay. Family. But he he didn't. Well, when we lived in Great Neck, there was no Orthodox temple, so the the uh, conservative temple was the only it was the only one, and so you went to that with him. So that's why. Yeah. Okay. So, under your education, right? So this is a great school out in Great Neck. Great elementary school, great high school. Right? And um, at what point did you start thinking about, okay, science is the is the life I want to lead? I enjoyed the science classes and took science classes from whenever I had a an elective opportunity uh-huh. um, in high school and my mother who was a was an experimental psychologist um, noticed that interest and she saw on the bulletin board of the new school for social research where she was teaching at that point oh, okay um, a notice of a summer school at, in Bar Harbor, Maine at the Jackson Laboratory. And she came home and said, would you be interested in going there? And I said that I had nothing else to do for the summer. It sounded like a good idea. So I was a, a 
rising senior at that point in high school. And it, it was, there were almost no such programs um, anywhere for high school students. So I went to spend uh, six or eight weeks in, in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, um, in what was the most advanced institution of genetic research in, in the world. Had you ever been away from home for that long? No. And well, I had. I had gone to summer camp. Yes. Oh, I so had, that's had, yeah. That's comparable in yeah, as far as time. Right. Okay. So you came back from there thinking, you know, biology is what I want to do? Or So I, what, what they had us do was some small experiments with faculty. We did three little projects with three different faculty. Now, looking back on it, these were three of the most important people in science at the time. Don Bailey, Tibby Russell, and, and uh, Willie Silvers. Uh -huh. um, to me, they were just the faculty. And yeah, you didn't know who they were. I, right. I didn't appreciate how important they were. Um, and I did little projects with them. Uh, and, you know, I discovered that, um, that I could be at the leading edge of science working with these people and, and doing experiments in that no one knew the answer to. Because these are real research. They, yeah. they were little research projects that fit into their larger scheme of research. And I had the experience as a high school student of knowing something, not something very important, but knowing something that no one else in the world knew. Huh. And that was the most rewarding experience that I had ever had. And I simply said, this is what I want to spend my life doing. You're saying that it was um, the concept of, of at the forefront of obtaining knowledge? Yeah, because I did an experiment. I was, for instance, we were looking, I remember, at the length of bones of mice that had particular genetic defects. Uh -huh. And I measured the bones and did the controls and showed they were different from the experiment. And I didn't really, I, to this day, I can't tell you why it was an interesting experiment. <laughs> but, but I had an answer. And it was inconceivable that I could be working on something that no one knew the answer to. Right. See, that's, that's the heart of this question, I think. Yeah. Was it fascinating that you found an answer or that you found an answer that nobody else knew. I mean, it wasn't that you discovered it just for you, but nobody else knew that as well. Right. Yeah, that's, right. that is exciting. Right. So you returned from there eight, eight weeks later, six to eight weeks right. later, a changed man, if you will. Right, I was. And then what happened? Um, and then I had You to, had a rising year. The next decision I had to make was where do I go to college? Yeah. And that decision became very easy because actually my mother had contacts at Swarthmore College and the sort of guru of this high school program was a college student who was um, just going into his final year at Swarthmore. Uh -huh. um, a man who uh, Howard Timmon who was totally was very entwined with the rest of my life. Yep. And I had a girlfriend sort of in the class who went to Swarthmore. And so Swarthmore was the obvious place for me to go. How did you know her already, though? 
I didn't. She was part of the high school program. Oh, so she went to she, Swarthmore with you? Yeah. I see. No, she was going to Swarthmore that year. She was a year older than I, I see. was. I um, And she later became actually quite a famous biologist, uh, Janet Tom. And so I had all sorts of reasons to think Swarthmore might be the answer. And the obvious answer for me was to go to MIT because that's a great technical school mm -hmm. and I yeah. could advance in biology. Swarthmore's biology was, was um, pretty outside the, of, of the mainstream of thinking in genetics and, and molecular biology at the time. Uh, but I really wanted the breadth of education that I could get at Swarthmore because I did know what I wanted to do and I knew that it was going to make a difference in graduate school and I wanted my undergraduate education to be broader and, and that has served me extremely well. I don't think I ever would have ended up the president of the university if I'd gone to MIT. That's a good point. So what other things did you learn in undergrad that, that sort of gave you this broad palette? I actually, I mean, I took courses in a whole variety of areas in music and in, in philosophy and literature uh, but that's not the important thing. The important thing was the people I met, the conversations that I had, the perspectives that I got from living in the dormitory with people who had no interest in science. Huh. Yeah. Um, okay, so then four years there, and um, I think you'd gone in with the, with the idea that you were going to major in biology, but you switched to chemistry halfway through. I, no, I switched to chemistry in the last year, and that was because um, the biologists were sort of in the last century um, and the chemists at Swarthmore were younger and much more forward-looking and one of them in particular a man who died just recently Gilbert Haight um, sort of took me on and he, he had taught me freshman chemistry when I came and he helped me get a research opportunity as a senior uh, which I wanted to do it and to do a thesis uh -huh. as a senior uh, but he said you're going to have to switch into chemistry to do this because the biologists just didn't understand and so I did and actually a training in chemistry is the best way to become a biologist because biology is all about chemistry the chemistry of life yep yep but back then, though, it felt like... Um, back then, it wasn't so obvious. Yeah, biology and, and was... And that's because the whole strain of biology had been very observational, and the, the development of chemistry, particularly because of Pauling here at Caltech, um, had become very basic in its orientational orientation towards quantum chemistry. And so then you graduated from Swarthmore. So I graduated from Swarthmore, but in my senior year, in my as a rising senior at Swarthmore, I had the opportunity to spend the summer at, at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Oh, I see. And so I met all of the people who were um, developing molecular biology because they all spent the summer at Cold Spring Harbor. Luria and Galbraith. Yep. So many others. Yeah. And Luria had just moved to MIT, or was just moving to MIT. Uh, and had a young faculty member from MIT with him, Cyrus Leventhal, um, 
And they came to me and said, would you be interested in going to graduate school at MIT? Uh, we're starting a new graduate program. We have a very small faculty in this area. But it was, as, as I looked at it, that as a senior, it was about the only program in the country. Um, and when I talked to other biologists um, or people who had just graduated from Swarthmore, um, they had gone to um, Rockefeller, they'd gone to Brandeis, mm -hmm. uh, but the program at MIT was, was going to be the broadest and most interesting program. Uh, the, the one thing that I didn't conceive of doing was going to Caltech. Caltech was really where things were happening. Howard Temin had gone to Caltech. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and but but for me, as a New Yorker, as an East Coaster, it um, seemed like it just seemed like it was inconceivable. Um, my parents had never been to California. They had. Um, my father had actually been on an airplane. Because for business he went to, I don't know, Omaha or something. Yeah. Uh. Um, but that was a big event in, in my family's life. So to, it just the idea of going to California was foreign. Was, was inconceivable. To yeah. Me. Later, as a graduate student, I did go to California for the first time. Right. Okay. So, but so then you do go to MIT. So I went to MIT, and, and MIT had a terrific program in biophysics. And I joined that program and actually was qualified in biophysics uh, because biophysics was sort of one of the generating forces in molecular biology. Um, but I, I, and I started doing a little bit of research work with Cyrus Leventhal uh, on bacteriophage. And I, I wasn't totally satisfied why not? Because of the experience that I had at Jackson Lab, where I had seen that you could do experiments with animals, and you could look at models of human behavior, human physiology, um, in mice, and that you could also do genetics in mice. Mm -hmm. And so I had this interest in, in being involved in, in mouse work, in that perspective on, on, on mammals, uh, and yet wanting to do molecular biology. And it occurred to me that if bacteriophage could teach you a lot about bacterial physiology, then animal viruses could teach you a lot about animal biology. So I went to Leventhal and I asked him, did that make any sense? And he said, yeah, that made sense. But he had no idea how you would ever get started. And I, So I went to Luria because Luria had written the first virology textbook and it included animal viruses as well as phage. And he said, 
I think that's a very interesting idea. I don't know if animal virology is ready for molecular biology. But why don't you find out? I'll arrange for you to go in the beginning of the summer to the laboratory of one of the few people doing really quantitative work in animal virology, a man named Phil Market. And, uh, and you can take the animal virus course, which was just then starting up at Cold Spring Harbor. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And there I met the man I wanted to do my thesis with, Richard Franklin. But Richard was at Rockefeller. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And so I came back to Lurie and I said, I want to move to Rockefeller. Now, they were just starting this program at MIT. They had invested a lot in me. He had they recruited been, you, for instance. They yeah. recruited me. They, he had been a mentor to me. Um, and it was really very nasty of me to come back and say, I want to leave. Well, how'd they take it? Laurie was wonderful. He recommended me to the president of, Rock, of Rockefeller, which is how you got into the graduate program. And I got into the graduate program you know, with about, in about five days, uh -huh. because it was fall already, and uh, they were starting up. And um, he, he wrote to Devlet Bronk, and Bronk interviewed me and said, yes, you can come. I mean, but if, had he not done that, that would have been awful petty, right? I mean, it... Oh, sure it would, but, but, uh, but he did it with, with, with me, with my future in mind. In mind, yeah. Yeah, and not was, the schools. Yeah. Right. And it was really very... And he, he could have made it difficult. And in fact, uh, Bronk was making it difficult at the Rockefeller end, so it was easy to say, you know, why don't you stay here for another year? And they had a person coming who was going to do animal virology, Jim, James Darnell, uh, coming to MIT that next year. And, but I wasn't sure I could work with him. I didn't know what his plans were. So then that was just a year at MIT and then to Rockefeller? Right. Right, okay. And so at, at Rockefeller, um, I think, I think you, you got your PhD in, in some phenomenally short amount of time. Well, the work, I did the work in two years. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, so what, what did and you learn there? What I learned was that animal virology was absolutely ready for an approach of using molecular tools and molecular thinking. And I was, I was walking through open doors. And I developed a few very simple techniques that allowed me to probe how, how uh, a, a relative of poliovirus grew, what it did to cells, um, how it made its own genomes, uh, its own genome. And uh, I had uh, the incredible experience of sort of walking in every day and saying, maybe I'll have a look at this, and looking at it and seeing that it was interesting. And I published innumerable papers with um, with Richard Franklin. Uh -huh. uh, the next summer, there was an animal virus uh, symposium at Cold Spring Harbor, and we gave one of the lead papers there. Richard gave that. Um, and then I came back from there convinced that I could find the polymerase that, that, um, uh, that polio used to, to grow. And it took me a, a month in the summer to find that polymerase. <laughs> to, uh, 
that was the first RNA dependent RNA polymerase ever. How did it feel to be coming in? I mean, you're, you're young for this. You're coming in, and it's almost like a scientific playground for you. I mean, you're dreaming up things, and then you're finding the answer in short order. Did you feel like you're, you were, um, you know, that you're on the verge of, of new science constantly? Right, I did. And Was that exhilarating? It, it oh, sounds it was exhilarating. Absolutely exhilarating. And um, and I had a wonderful mentor in Richard Franklin, who wasn't himself a molecular biologist. He was actually a biophysicist. Sort of structure guy, but he had gotten interested in animal viruses and had gone and worked with some of the leading people in Germany, uh-huh. which is where, in fact, this is now sort of post war, but um, one of the fields that, that developed very quickly back up in Germany was animal virology uh-huh. um, in Tübingen. And so he had gone there and been trained there. Um, so it was just wonderful to work with. And he gave me the freedom to do basically what I want. Yeah, I'm a smart man. Um, so when you get your PhD, and then um, I think you you went to so, the Salk Institute. No, no I, I what happened was that after two years, I had a thesis, and Richard was leaving. He was going to Colorado, um, and so I said to the people at Rockefeller, "Can I get a? If I write a thesis, can I get a degree?" And they said, oh, well, don't do that. We really have a requirement for three years in residence. But you can always take a year off. And so if you wanted, and I wanted to go to MIT to the, this guy, James Darnell, mm-hmm. who yeah. actually turned out to have been one of the leading people in the application of, of modern thinking to animal viruses. Um, and and had some techniques that I wanted to learn. So I said, fine, so I will go to MIT as a postdoc, but, but actually spend the time writing up my thesis, and um, I will only get a degree in the next, the, the following June, which is what I did. Right, okay. So I was away from Rockefeller for that year, but, and did finish my thesis, went out to Colorado's for some time to ah, write with Richard, right. mm-hmm. finish it up. And then, uh, but meanwhile, I had the opportunity to learn what was going on in, in Jim's lab at MIT. Jim then decided to leave MIT at the end of that year and go to Albert Einstein in New York. Um, and so I was back deciding what to do and I decided to go to Albert Einstein but to work with Jerry Hurwitz uh, Jerry was a great biochemist mm-hmm. is a great biochemist um, he's now at, at Sloan Kettering and um, so that allowed me to learn biochemistry even though I had been doing it for years I started with the work in, on, on uh, this relative of polio and on polio mm-hmm. I was doing it sort of without a license, and Jerry had been trained by Kornberg, and that was the the lineage of people that really understood the biochemistry of, of uh, RNA and DNA. And so I got a, a year of training with him. Uh, in the spring of that year, 
uh, Renato Del Becco came through New York and he said, would I be interested in going to the Salk Institute with him? He was just moving from Caltech to the Salk Institute. And uh, I said that by this time I had once been to California and I knew it was a real place. <laughs> um, it wasn't just a place on the map, right, yeah. And, and had real institutions. And so uh, I, and he, he offered me just the most wonderful opportunity because he said, I, I've got this big lab. Uh, I don't want to fill it with just people who are responsible to me. I'll give you a piece of lab. You can work on what you want to work on. I'll work on what I want to work on. He was working with DNA viruses at the time. How old were you at this point? Uh, how old was I? Uh, let's see. This is 1965. Five, right. Um, You're like 28 I'm, or I'm something. 28. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, that, but I mean, so that's your first. You're not running that lab, but it sort of almost feels like it. You can do well. I was running my own little lab within it, but I had support from him, and and he took care of all of the administration, or his office took care of the administration. Yeah. It was the perfect thing, and I could have some people. So, I brought out a postdoc, a guy who was working with Jim Darnell, who wanted to spend one more year in the United States. He's French, uh, Marc Girard. And I later took a second postdoc, who is now my wife, and has been my wife now for almost fifty years. Yeah, but but you were had uh, you been married before? I had at that time. Yeah, I moved out to California with a wife. Married, yes. Was she a scientist? No, she wasn't. She was an artist. Ah, okay. And we broke up, uh, partly over. The fact that I was spending all of my life in the lab. In the lab, yeah. yeah. But did you find the art and science that was fine? That the two of you had those interests and that worked okay? I well, no, it didn't work terrifically well, um, because um, she had her own world and her own interests, and um, and I had mine, and and so we were not we were not intellectually joined. When I married Alice, you were. We were. Yeah, yeah, that makes I sense. Have been ever since. Okay, so you you head out there with your wife. Right. She agrees to go to California. Right. Um, it's, well, she it, thought that was a great opportunity. Yeah, great yeah, I would think so. And and um, this is in the '60s, so there's there's the Vietnam War is ongoing, and there's um, right some turmoil on campuses. I would assume uh, there was, um, and I became I was involved in the anti-war movement in San Diego. Oh, I didn't know that. Heavily involved, or or uh, fairly heavily, and in, in what ways? Leading protests, or um, right, leading protests and and, and um, organizing meetings. And, and why did you? Um, what led you to that? I mean, the, the Vietnam War was such an abomination that it, I, I think everybody felt. I mean, every sort of uh, person who wasn't enthralled to the to the uh, right-wing ideology that uh -huh. led us into that um, was opposed to the war and, and uh, I was young and had a lot of yeah, fire yeah. and time and yeah. whatever 
But did you have time? Well, no, I didn't have much time. But I had you had enough time, yeah. The energy level was high. Right. Right, right. okay. Um, so you spent about a year at the Salk Institute. No, I spent two and a half years. Oh, geez. Okay, two and a half. Um, yeah. And then what, something brings you back to the East Coast. I don't so, know what it is. Yes, the, the thing, the, the precipitating event was an art show that my wife had. This is my, my first one. Um, that um, there was a young artist in, and it, the show was at the Salk Institute. There was a young artist who um, had uh, some pieces in there that were inflammatory. And this was a very conservative community, the, the Moya at the time. Uh, the university was just getting going there and didn't have a huge influence yet. And it was, a, it was actually a lot of retired military. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, right. Um, and so there was a real uh, outcry about that. And I was not supportive at all by the administration. I just was sick of it. And I was also a little tired of being at a newly developing institution that was trying to find its way and hadn't yet found its way and didn't have procedures. I didn't know how I was going to get promoted. I didn't know where where what kind of independence I could ever expect there. Although Gobekka uh, uh, was wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and I had had an occasion to come to Boston to give a talk uh, because they were considering me at Harvard. And Luria heard about that and said, if you're thinking about going to Boston, you're going to MIT. <laughs> and wrote me a letter. I mean, I, it wasn't just that simple, but ultimately wrote me a letter uh, that I had in my desk saying, if you want to come to MIT, we want you. And um, Like a blank check almost. Yeah, like a blank yeah. check almost. And so when this happened... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And I called Maria and I said, I'm taking you up on your offer. And uh, what happened was that 
let's see, that would have been in the um, spring of 67. No. no. It would have been the fall of 66. So in 67, I went to Paris for, um, I think it was six months. And, and by that time, I was, my marriage had broken up and I was actually involved with Alice, who was in my lab uh -huh. at, at Salk. Um, but I left and spent uh, six months in, no, it was, more, it was more like three or four months, actually, in Paris. I worked with Marc Girard with, because he was at the Pasteur Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and I worked with a, a wonderful man, Boris Afrusi, at um, Il Juif, outside of Paris. And so I had a very full um, scientific life there. I knew a little French from having taken years of French in high school and college. Um, so that I could get along in France and have a good time. Yeah, did you come back knowing a lot more French? And actually? I came back knowing yeah. a lot more French. Yeah, that's good. And then I um, I came back and then Alice and I popped in her little MG midget and we drove across the country. To MIT. To MIT. And, um, Arriving there in a blizzard in the 2nd of January. In an, in an MG? Now, those are great for blizzards, right? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you, you you became a full professor at MIT in, in short order, I think, in, in Well, I years. came as an associate professor. Yeah. Because I had more or less the assistant professor time as as my, in the position I had at Salk. Salk, right. wasn't a literal assistant professor. Yeah, yeah. Served that purpose. Um, but I, I came to MIT in, so in January... Of '68, and then in um, June of 1970, I uh, discovered the reverse transcriptase, and so um, everybody except me seemed to know that I was going to get the Nobel Prize for that. And um, I mean, in retrospect, it's clear. I mean, um, yeah, in retrospect. It's clear. But at the time, they, they you, you felt that people were also like, ah, that's. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was just science, right? So I, I was following my nose, and it ended up there. Uh, so let's, let's jump to that. That was um, 72. No, no. No, 75. 70. No, no, no. I mean the Nobel, though. The Nobel, oh, the Nobel 75. Prize yeah. It was 75. Yeah. Right. Um, you had no idea that it was coming. No idea. How did you hear? I mean, I love the whole, you know, the, the whole um, regalia of it. I mean, the phone call, you know, yeah. the time difference in the phone call. Right. So how did you hear that, that you'd won the Nobel? I heard because my wife called me and told me. How did she hear? She was at a meeting in uh, Denmark, and the man running the session that she was speaking in was a Swedish scientist who was on the Nobel Committee, George Klein. And she said, George was being very strange. Um, and George was running the session and so at the end of the session George summarized it as he very elegantly does to this day I believe 
and and then he got to the end of the summary and he said to the audience he said I I have nothing more to say but it's a half an hour until a Nobel Prize is going to be announced and I'm going to tell you who's going to win and he announced that and he knew Alice was my wife I mean was he looking at your wife when he yes. said this oh man and he announced that Howard Timmon and I and Renata would, would get the Nobel Prize. Three of who, people whose careers had been connected with each right. other. Mm-hmm. Um, Howard wasn't at that meeting either, even it was it was a leukemia meeting. In fact. Um, and so she immediately found a phone and called me. Now this is 1975. Right. Long distance phone calls was something you didn't make. Yeah. Um, yep. Easily because they were expensive and complicated. But she she did find a phone and did get me. I we were on sabbatical that year in New York, so most people didn't know where I was because we just set up house there yep. and she had gone off to this meeting. And I had no idea that the Nobel Prize was going to be announced. Not part of my thinking. Yeah, it's not on your calendar every year. And so she wakes me at six thirty in the morning (laughs) and says, um, "Meg's wrong." That's the first thing she said because a long distance call would generally mean something. Something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And she said, "I don't want this to spoil you." Was the next thing she said. What? And you're thinking, what are you what talking you... about? And she then said that I was going to win the Nobel Prize. That's amazing. I and mean, did you were, were you did you believe it? I mean, obviously well, she's not pulling your leg, but no, no, but, um, she's not pulling my leg. I knew that uh, because it wasn't on our radar screen. I mean, it wasn't a joke that you played. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and we talked about it for a while, and then she hung up. And then there was dead silence. And actually, at that point, we had a small baby, and, and so we had a nanny. That's your who, first who child. Was, yeah, our first, first, our only child. Yeah, yeah. And um, the nanny was with the child out in the in the living room, and I came out to her. And I said, "Did you hear a phone ring?" <laughs> she said, "Yes." She said, so it wasn't a dream. Um, and then the Swedes called. Uh, the New York right. Times called. Uh, all hell did break loose. Yeah. But yeah, literally. I mean, do people were coming to your door? Oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, there's a wonderful picture. See, a series of pictures. It's a great story. Um. So the New York Times sent over a. They found out I was in New York, so they sent over a photographer. And so the photographer came and took various pictures of me, but I picked, the baby was on the floor and I picked her up and was holding her. And the picture of the New York Times the next day was the back of the baby's head and my my holding her uh, over my shoulder. At, at the and, front door or something? You, you, no, no, this was in the so house. They had come in the house I and see. he had set up his. Yeah. Um, and, but that was to the memory of anybody I've ever talked to 
the first time a baby appeared on the front page of the New York Times. Oh, really? Yes. I'm going to have to look that picture up. It must yeah. be in their archives, yeah. Oh, it, it certainly is. Uh, not only is it in the archives, but um, when Teak was 21... Teak is your daughter. Teak is my daughter. Yeah. yeah. When she was 21, a friend... No, when she graduated from college, sorry, graduated from Yale, uh, a friend of hers who had graduated a year before and was working in with the New York Times, I think, in um, New York, had uh, gone into the archives and found other shots that were taken by this photographer and had one of those framed and gave it to her. As a, as a birthday with, gift? Yeah, it's a birthday oh, gift. Oh, man. And that's a picture of her facing forward. Um, with her dad as he wins with, the... As I'm holding, now, I'm holding yeah. her, but yeah, right. That's a great story. Yeah, that's that's a sweet gift. It really, really was. So um, we have that still. So that did you went to the ceremony? Obviously, yeah. Did the whole family come? Uh, well, no, uh, because my daughter was only um, one year old at that point. That there was no reason to take her. I mean, she, drag her on the flight and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And she wouldn't remember anything. Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, she didn't come. Um, but but Alice came, and um, actually. My father, when when the prize was announced, this day when, when I heard about it, my father was in the hospital at Mount Sinai, um, and the hospital didn't open its phones until 8 o'clock. And so he heard about it first on the Today Show, on the, it's on the television program, um, and they immediately put him back into... Intensive care. What, what was he in there for? Oh, yeah, he had, had a heart. Oh, so then he sees his son is winning the Nobel and his heart spikes, his heart rate well, spikes. Well, so, yeah, they, they, oh, they were worried about that, so they put him under, under surveillance. Uh, and so I, the next thing I did was get in a cab and go across town to, to yeah. see him. That's a big day. It's a huge day then. Yeah, it is. Because what I did then was go to the airport and fly up to MIT because I, I knew that MIT would want to celebrate this and I felt I mean I owed everything to MIT yeah so you you wake up you you learn that you've won the Nobel you you go visit your dad in intensive care right. fly to MIT and then how soon is the ceremony after the announcement oh it's it's months oh months okay yeah. all right yeah it's not it's like not you need to fly December. the next day right okay um and but the other thing and then we'll move on but I I read someplace that the, that was the 75th anniversary of the Nobel Prize it was so that was quite a ceremony that's right so every 25 years, they invite back all living Nobel laureates to the ceremony. And that meant that when I gave my talk, because you give a talk to the Karolinska faculty, uh-huh. sitting in the front row were all the people who I remembered as the founders of molecular biology. Watson and Crick and, and uh, uh, Jacob and Manot and Lavoff and uh, it was... And you're standing speaking to yeah, them. Yeah, and I'm standing speaking to them. That was the most stunning moment when I, I... I hadn't really processed who was in the audience until I got up and turned around, and there they all were. Did you freeze? I think I would have frozen. Um, luckily, I had a script. <laughs> <laughs> you read from the script. Um, 
That's a great story. Uh, the other thing that happened that year that I want to talk about, especially as it applies to biotech, is the uh, Similar Conference. Right. Right. Uh, this was a international discussion on, I think it was international discussion on recombinant DNA engineering and a moratorium around that, um, which you are a big leader for yeah. that. Um, can you tell me why that was why that was the right decision at the time? I mean, I some people argue it was the wrong decision, but I thought it was the right and still think it was the right decision. Because not that I really believed that there were huge dangers in it, but because a lot of other people believed that. And that we had to develop a procedure process that would uh, allow people to be comfortable with the recombinant DNA technology in the face of fear-mongering that, mm -hmm. that had taken over a lot of the press and, and also some of my colleagues in biology uh, who were arguing this technique, technology should never be used. I mean, famous people were saying that. And, and so it was a, um, a very charged time. And the Asilomar Conference was an attempt to um, bring rational discussion in an organized fashion and develop a procedural framework for moving forward with care. And we did that. Yeah. And it worked. Uh, it slowed things up for a while. Uh, it made it hard to do some things that, in retrospect, should have been easy. Uh, but in the end, everything got done. And in the end, recombinant DNA, te DNA technology revolutionized biology. Yeah, yeah. So this, this another question about the that that decade in the eighties. So this um, this Teresa Amanishikari oh, that paper. Oh, another. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, you tell me where I'm wrong here, but the the basics are she published a paper um, in like eighty six, I think. Yes. And later on, one of her one of her postdocs, I think, was trying to replicate the data and had trouble doing so. And said, "Look, this data has to be false." No one has ever found anything wrong with the data. It, this woman was simply—I couldn't say it at the time—incompetent. The woman who tried to the investigator, it. yeah. Right. And uh, and then she blamed Teresa, and by extension me, uh -huh. uh, because the paper that we had published was joint was joint work of our two laboratories. Um, but, you know, and no one has ever followed it up because it, it was off the table. Yeah, no, I remember there was, like, I think there, uh, the New Yorker put an article out when it was finally... Right, Dan Kevlis wrote an article in the New Yorker uh, in which he predicted that uh, we would be exonerated. Yeah. And um, about uh, three months later, we were. We were. But it's interesting to look back at the at the newspaper articles now. Um, you know you know how newspaper articles, they're, they're so... Even more so now, of course, the the, the Schadenfreude. Um, it was like you know David Baltimore's fall from grace, Nobel Prize winners, Stain, and all these other things that, you know, decades later you're like, God, that was really over over the top. Um, it sure was. Yeah, and, and there was a congressman from Michigan who was involved in this. John Dingle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, looking back at that now, do you feel like there was something else going on? Well, of course there was. Well, what was it? it was John Dingle's. Um desire for power 
So he was attempting to use the House Energy Investigative Committee to gain as much control as he could over the federal government. He had been extremely successful because he had developed a, a uh, group of investigators who had no morality at all, were willing to accuse people of anything, um, and they had um, basically gotten American industrial figures mm-hmm. in front of that committee and so badly treated them that um, they would do anything to avoid being called back. And that's what he wanted. He wanted that hegemony. Um, and he extended that to budgetary control over very large parts of the American um, budget, of the government budget. And this was his attempt to control NIH because if he could prove that they couldn't control fraud themselves, then he could take over and try to control it. So this was about... He didn't understand science. No, no. This was about government spending on basic research. That was his his point. He's like, we're spending these taxpayer dollars on research that is not valid? No, 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 no. That's what he attempted to say because he was trying to use uh, that as his leverage over the NIH budget. budget. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually himself was in favor of basic research, and and he, he his father had been an important uh, contributor to to writing the legislation for NIH. His father had also been a congressman. Yeah. So this took a decade, basically. So this um, took a decade to play out. Yeah, and unspooled for for a decade. It, it cost you your presidency of the Rockefeller, right? It did. Um, you hadn't been there long, but it was. You know, it's in the paper every day, and it was sort of like I think for, probably for recruitment processes. You said I'm just going to step down. And the New York Times was was leading the way. Uh, I ultimately got a public apology from the New York Times. It's rare. Uh, it's all unheard of, um, and it's it wasn't exactly front page news, but they printed it. But they printed it. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so this that puts us into the into the nineties. When you left the Rockefellers, it was back to MIT. I came back to MIT. Um, okay, so a couple other things I want to talk about. Uh, in two thousand, you win the um, it's the National Award for Science and Technology. Right, it's the highest National award. National Medal of Science. Yeah, from the president. Uh, it's the highest award American science offers. Um, did you know Bill Clinton well? Moderately well. Did, and you went to the White House for the ceremony? I did. How was that? Had you been there before? I hadn't been in the inner uh, work, the, the inner rooms of it, no. How was it? It was a wonderful ceremony, and Bill Clinton was, was a very generous, very warm, very strong supporter of science. Later, Clinton came out to Caltech when I was president and gave the only speech that he ever gave on science and technology. Did you help him with it? Uh, no, I didn't. Well, actually, I, I guess I talked a little bit to his science advisor about it, but 
uh, you know, they wrote it in Washington, and then Clinton never actually followed scripts. So I had the script for it, and I could follow it, and I could see where he added on things and interpolated, made off the cuff his, his actually fairly famous remark about his inner nerd coming out. Is that what he said? I saw. I did see him speak once, and um, it was about a forty-five minute speech. And one time, I saw him flip a page. That was it. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing speaker. Yeah. An amazing speaker. An amazing man. Um, okay, so then you, you won the Nobel. You win this. Yes. Um, that's Who about as anything. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Okay, so um, president of Caltech. Um, another paper happens, and I'm bringing this up to ask you a question. This is yeah. um, his name is Luke. Von Riesch, I think. Von Parts. Von Parts, yeah. I'm sorry, pronounce that wrong. Uh, it was the concept is that he may have fudged some graphs while he was in uh, yes. at Caltech. He'd, go, he'd gone on to MIT, and maybe things there he did some things that are a little more egregious, right? Oh yes. Um, and this again brought your name up. So uh, the question I want to talk about here is, why did these things happen in in research? Is it because experimental research is really hard, or does it have something to do with how cutthroat academic publishing is, or maybe some other factor I'm not considering? You know, I can't put myself in the place of people who uh, make up data or who who, uh, plagiarize, because it's it's just such a foreign thing to me, And, and so I can only guess my guess is as good as anybody else's about why these things happen. Uh, yes, there is a lot of pressure today, but not so much in the past, um, to publish that may make people do things that are inappropriate. And I, but but then there are a lot of people who would never consider conceive of doing anything inappropriate. Um, the two cases that, that I had connection with, as I said, the first, Teresa's, was simply political manipulation. Mm-hmm. It had actually nothing to do with her activity. No, yes, but the, the student below her, you know, it was that part of the cutthroat aspect? The student below saying, like, I am sort of going after this researcher. She, she was not a pleasant person. I, I don't want to denigrate her okay but, um, I, that was about her uh, not about science okay and it's unique and it was unique that that she got access to the highest echelons of Congress and that was just a confluence of her interests and Dingle's interests yep yep and his his investigators who worked with her fed her fed the press so that's not really the same kind of thing at all. Uh, Luke was a, a, a shame. He was a very smart guy. He did important work in my lab, um, work that we've built on ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no question. This was very early in the days when people started comparing figures and saw that he... Um, had used um, figures uh, that the same figure had been used for more than one uh, image in a paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and then traced it back to actually work that he had done before he came to my laboratory. But all of it really exploded because uh, at MIT he had um, simply claimed to have done work which had not happened. I see, okay. And the people in his lab had called him on it. Um, so that was, and, and so what had happened that I knew about and that, that his previous mentors knew about um, were minor things compared to what happened. What he did, yeah. And, but harbingers, and, and the lesson that I've learned from that is that when people cut corners in ways that may not seem terribly important, that that may be seen as, a, as an ethical flaw. That later could come out. If you're willing to do this, if you you're may willing be willing. To do that, you might be willing to do that. Makes sense. Much worse. Yeah, and that, I think that's what happened with him. Uh, I, so, I want to sort of bring this full circle with the moratorium things. 2015, you help lead an international coalition for a moratorium on editing the, the germline through CRISPR-Cas9. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, why did you feel like this was the right step to do? And, and I'm going to preface this if I can. It, it seems like your thoughts on this are. Um, when you have a brand new technology with great promise, but also it's brand new, the idea is just to stop, take a deep breath, and figure things out. Is that accurate? That's accurate. That's accurate. What do we do from this step going forward? What you've got to do is to develop public confidence that you've taken into account the potential negatives um, and that you're moving forward in understanding that there's a risk, understanding that you have to be vigilant, um, and at the same time, not allowing yourself to be so frozen by fear that great advances in science don't get utilized because of the fears. And that's a, that's a difficult stance because it's an ambiguous stance. It's much easier to say, oh, we won't do it. Right. And there are people who say that about CRISPR, about recombinant DNA methods. And they are dangerous. They're dangerous to the progress of science. Um, and, you know, in an international world, they can't even do what they want to do because there's just too much opportunity for other countries to do things. People who are not uh, state actors mm -hmm. to do it. Uh, so there's all sorts of reasons that that's the wrong approach. Uh, but there is a parallel between the recombinant DNA issues and the, and the CRISPR-Cas9 issues. Uh, and in both cases, I've, I've certainly felt that uh, the important, the, the right thing to do is to be open and transparent with the general society and community. Um, and even if it sort of holds things up a little bit. Uh, maybe just a, a final question. Looking back over your career, right? I mean, do you have any things that are major regrets, either that you didn't pursue or that you wish you'd done something differently? Um, no, I don't have major very glad that I got involved in the administration of science as well as the 
doing of sorts um, that has that, that has special satisfactions. Very glad that I got involved early on and have been involved in various ways in in biotechnology. One of the major involvements that I had was with a, a uh, an investment company called BB Biotech. Mm -hmm. Seventeen years, I was involved with them in making decisions about investments. It's been a very successful fund. Um, so I've seen a lot of the industry and in its development, both in the United States and in Europe. Um, I'm very satisfied that that I've trained large number of people, many of whom have gone on to very important positions in, in American academic life, some even abroad, um, and and they are you know, sort of my intellectual children, Yeah, I stay close to them, yeah. follow their activities, and that's very satisfying. Um, I wish that the whole incident with Teresa Yamini-Shikari hadn't happened, but not, but I had no choice in my own mind but to uh, help her and be out front in a way, uh, and I don't regret it uh, as a decision, I just regret that it all, the whole thing happened, and, yeah. and what happened to her was a lot worse than what happened to me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, the regret. Yeah, really, that's a it's a great, it's it's wonderful to have somebody who's had a career like this and look look back and go, I really don't have any regrets. I think that's rare. It feels rare. It probably is rare. Um, I don't know. Uh, I've never really asked many people that question, so I don't know how they would answer it. But I, I must say that the people I am close to in science, my guess is most of them would answer the same way. Because the people I know well in science have had wonderful lives uh, of, of creative activity, of involvement with the world around them, um, with uh, both institutional activities and, and uh, basic science issues. Um, people like Paul Berg. Uh -huh. Maxine Singer, mm -hmm. who I'm yeah. close to, uh, a little lower than I am, Herb Weissman, Lee Wood, uh, who are more my age, and then the, some of the trainees that I've had, uh, Owen Witte and, and uh, Brett Alden. Thank you very much for the, taking the time and having me in. I appreciate it. Okay, that is it, your First Rounders podcast with David Baltimore. Thanks to David for taking the time um, and for having me into the lab there on Caltech's campus. Beautiful campus. I'd never been. It made me, uh, made me want to go back to school or something. Uh, also, thanks as always, Midwest Quiet, for use of their music in these podcasts. If you're looking for more information on David, go to our blog, Trade Secrets. You can find it linked off the Nature Biotech homepage. I will put up links to uh, background on David, uh, in particular things that we discussed in this podcast. 
Uh, also, if you have comments on this podcast or about anything else, really, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Um, yeah, I think the other thing is I realized I'm never going to win a Nobel Prize. Not that I've been considering it, but after talking to David, it seems clear. It's, it's clear that that is out of my future. Uh, that's all. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you in the next episode. Um, but for now, thank you and goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.